This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Here we are in the middle of the month of November. This year is whipping along, isn't it? Well, we should have an interesting hour of our program today. We are with you between 6 and 7 on Sunday mornings this time of the year. NFL preview is along at 7 o'clock. Sports Edge at 7.30. The morning line program's along at 8.30. And, of course, Football Sunday happens at 9 here on The Fan on Sunday mornings. We're joined this portion of our program by Dr. Jason Young. Uh, Dr. Young is the co-author of a new book entitled Resistance to Belief Change. We'll get into talking with him about that. Um, His background is in an interesting area uh, known as social psychology. Uh, He has uh, served as a full-time associate professor at uh, Hunter College in the City University of New York and uh, elsewhere. Um, He's taught undergraduate, graduate courses in this topic over the past uh, 30 years, and he's got a lot to share with us. We're going to cover a couple of different areas that I think will be of interest, especially also at this time of the year when, you know, people talk about this idea of the holidays. And I want to get into exactly where we go when we say that, because there's obviously a very big push that's coming, literally promoting, basically, the concept is one day, and specifically here, I'm speaking about the day after Thanksgiving. We get into talking about that whole Black Friday uh, situation and the whole holiday period of time, what this means, what this does to people and their relationships and the like. Dr. Young, first of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. It's great to be here this morning, Bob. Thank you. I want to start our discussion with um, talking, before we get into talking about your book, I mentioned in introducing you the fact that this term social psychology is very key to the work that you do, um, things that you've taught to some extent, I believe, even connected with the book, and we'll get into talking about the book in a couple moments. How do you explain what social psychology is? Well, actually, it's funny. Social psychology is uh, almost the opposite of what many people think of as psychology, because most of the time when you mention psychology, you think of therapy. You think of clinical issues. You think of problems that people have. And those are very important areas of focus. But social psychology studies everyday behavior. So we don't 
study necessarily the things that cause people problems, although certainly we study the things that could lead to those problems. But we, we study things like the formation of people's attitudes, uh, persuasion. Why are people influenced by others or why aren't they? We talk about the self and identity. We talk about groups and group behavior. Uh, we do talk about prejudice and stereotyping, uh, but basically we talk about all of the everyday things. And New York City is probably one of the single best places to study social psychology because, as I tell my students, you get on a subway train at any given moment, and right there you've got a social psych experiment uh, because you're looking at, for example, how people use personal space. When do you feel comfortable whether people are standing next to you or not? Whether do you make eye contact or not? Uh, what does all of that mean? So we're really interested in what is it that helps people to be functional in their day-to-day -day lives. And it's only when you get to the extremes of some of those things and you start looking at dysfunction that you switch over to uh, what we call clinical psychology, which is that other area that most jumps to most people's minds when you think of psychology. So what is it like for you as a professor teaching students about this? Because, you know, you use the example, and it's a great one of the subway, um, you know, and so many people can relate to that, obviously, here in the city. I mean, teaching students in New York City, it's, it's uh, again, I can relate them to a lot of the experiences they're having, but there's a big challenge with social psych as well, because many people assume that some of the topics we talk about, people assume they already know it. Uh, they know who they are. They know who their friends are. They think they know what makes people tick. And, I mean, those are important things because, of course, we should know ourselves or we'd be in a bit of trouble. However, the most fun about social psychology is identifying the things that go against our common knowledge uh, that are very counterintuitive. And, in fact, many of the things in our book, not to make a shameless plug, but many of the things in our book uh, are, are talking about things that go against the grain of what people would expect. Since, for instance, we figure if other people try to influence us, we're going to be open to it, we're going to listen to them, uh, we're going to be receptive, and equally important, we assume when we speak to others that they're going to listen to us. And it turns out that there's a whole lot of ways that we tend to stick to our guns, we tend to not change as easily as we might expect. Um, and that's partly because of the way I say it is our brain's architecture. We don't like to change that much. Um, but it's also because we often have ourselves locked in a certain social position. We, we want to impress our friends. We don't want to lose our friends. And, and uh, there's a lot that we often do in, in terms of self-presentation. You know, we feel it's important that we appear to other people in a certain way so that we're accepted. And in New York City, this can be extraordinarily important because a lot of people are coming here to be successful. And success, in part, is very much how you appear to others. What interested you most in, about this, this topic? In other words, what kind of drew you to this as an area of focus? Well, it's very funny you ask that. I was actually pre-law when I was in college. Hmm. And I, my first major was political science. And I thought, you know, I'd, uh, especially uh, I followed events in Washington, D.C. This is decades ago, light years before any of the types of things that are happening today. And <laughs> I wanted to learn more about, you know, the legal system and, and you know, what, what are the laws that people follow until the semester that I took a seminar on psychology and the law. And that was a very interesting interchange because it not only talked about the way we people are supposed to be 
that is the laws that are supposed to follow, but the ways that people really are. And I will never forget the day I went up to the professor and I said, what area of psychology is this? Because I too had assumed, well, you're talking about psychology, you're talking about clinical issues, depression and anxiety, and that's not what this class is about. This class is more about human nature. And sure enough, that was the first time I ever heard the term social psychology. And so social psychology uh, uh, really attracted me because it describes the way people really are, the way people typically are. And uh, from there, I started taking courses. And, well, next thing I knew, I was in grad school. And and, uh, here I am today. Now, your book is entitled Resistance to Belief Change, Limits of Learning. What's the book about? What inspired you to do this book? And tell us a little bit, too, about your co-author. Sure. Uh, Well, the original idea for the book came from my co-author, Dr. Joseph Lau, who is also at Hunter College. Um, and, and Dr. Lau was very interested in education and why do we have such a challenge teaching people, for that matter, anything. And one of the biggest challenges is teaching is not just about providing people with new knowledge and new ideas, but it's also about changing their existing ideas, changing their existing beliefs. And from the teaching perspective, one of the big things that we found is that people often don't learn as easily because they resist changing what they already know. Well, from there, we decided to expand the the range of the book and not just talk about teaching, but talk about things like uh, personal growth, uh, politics, law, medicine, implications of this resistance to belief change to a whole uh, range of things in our everyday life. So among the central uh, ideas that we present in the book is, number one, we have a tendency to resist changing our beliefs. We love to think we are open to change. We love to think that we're open to growth. And our mindset at times convinces that we are. But the reality is, in far too many circumstances, we don't change. Uh, And sometimes we actively resist change. We push back. But even more often, we actually, uh, we call this inertial change, uh, or inertial resistance, rather. Uh, We're not even aware that we're resisting change. You know, we, we uh, hear information, but we barely hear it, or we ignore it, or we too easily dismiss it. And uh, the, again, a common example I give is, depending on someone's political proclivities, there may be a certain news source that they tend to listen to, um, and chances are that's the source they're going to trust and that they just sort of naturally gravitate to. And if someone were to try to encourage them to listen to a very different source, would say a very different point of view, um, they might feel a little bit of uh, annoyance or pain or, or other forms of resistance that just makes them even not want to listen to it. And if they listen to it, everything's being questioned. Everything's being shut down. So on the one hand, the only way we can grow is to absorb new information, but that doesn't come easily. And then the other aspect of that last point is, you know, you talk about the idea of absorbing new information, but it's absorbing new information in an age where basically the information never stops coming at you because we of the technology. Have, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, we, we actually have technology has made it available, uh, information available in a whole host of ways, um, well, particularly through our smartphones and, and the Internet. 
Um, and once upon a time, back way back when the internet was invented, they thought there's going to be limitless knowledge, and we're going to learn so much, and we're going to become elevated beings. And it turns out that uh, there there are human nature reasons why that broadening of our knowledge hasn't fully happened. Um, a key reason for that is we often listen to certain channels of knowledge. But that knowledge often tends to simply reiterate, to repeat what we already know. In fact, in psychology, there's something we call confirmation bias. And confirmation bias refers to our tendency to seek out that information which confirms, that agrees with, what we already believe. And that we also have a tendency to shut down or at least somewhat dismiss and more seriously question and critique that information that potentially could disconfirm what we already believe. So the the way that this term was actually employed uh, uh, during the last election, people often referred to it as an echo chamber. We tend to find ourselves in a situation where we're listening to the same voices that support us, and we're ready to sort of defend ourselves against and openly criticize those people who speak a very different point of view. And then there's this whole idea with the technology and all this information, but especially the technology, you know, of staying connected and how important that is. I mean, does that factor into um, this whole idea of change and the resistance to change? Well, it it should make us open to it. Mm-hmm. This is one of those counterintuitive ideas. Yeah, to be open to more people, I mean, to, to associate with more people, shouldn't we be open to more points of view? And especially in a city like New York City, you would think we are continually exposed to lots of different types of people. And, you know, New Yorkers probably are somewhat more open-minded, perhaps, than people who come from a small town. But I'm only going to say that because in a typical day, we are far more likely to encounter lots of people with different backgrounds. But that doesn't lead us to be quite as fully open-minded as we'd like to believe. We love to believe that New Yorkers are are far more worldly than a typical other person. But that's not entirely true because, in in fact, many of us uh, revert back to our neighborhoods, revert back to our social circles. And, in fact, while the Internet could make us uh, avail us, avail us to a wider range of people. Um, chances are, if you were to track where most people focus their attention, it's going to be a very familiar circle, or at least people again with very familiar beliefs. Dr. Jason Young is talking with us on our program on the Fan. Um, he is the co-author of the new book Resistance to Belief Change. And he's with us for this hour of our program. Other areas we're going to go in our discussion with him as well. We'll take a pause in our discussion now and take a look around the uh, sporting world. Uh, Seth Cantor is in studio with us to keep us up to date on happenings in the sporting world this morning. And then we will continue in our discussion with Dr. Young here on The Fan. Uh, Dr. Young is the co-author of the new book, Resistance to Belief Change. Uh, His PhD is in social psychology, and he's been talking with us a little bit about the book, about this topic of social psychology. There's a couple of areas that I want to get into in our discussion that are uh, timely as well. I should mention the fact, too, you know, sometimes I forget this, but um, 
in the course of our program, and we're with you from 6 until 7 on Sunday mornings. You want to join us, 877-337-6666. You have a question that's on point with something that is being raised in the discussion here today. Feel free to join us here at The Fan. Now, here we are this time of the year. We're basically on the verge of the holiday season. You know, Thanksgiving is literally days away. Um, And before we know it, we'll move into that period of time at the end of the year where it seems like everybody is racing around, whether it's related to Hanukkah or Christmas or New Year's. This holiday time and this whole concept of Black Friday, what can that do or what does that do to one's mental health? That's okay, the well, you. sure. Um, uh, well, <laughs> it's a good question about mental health for Black Friday. I would say Black Friday is sort of an outgrowth of the day before Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving, for some people, ends up being one of the most tension-filled holidays of the year, in part because it brings people together, uh, brings families together. And that often means bringing people together who wouldn't ordinarily choose to uh, be together. And we're talking about some of the families where... Uh, people have very strong opinions, tend to be very contentious, and um, just dealing with each other on a day like Thanksgiving can be uh, a bit of a trial. It can require a lot of effort. And Black Friday, I think, actually grew out of the fact that you have all these people together on Thanksgiving, and uh, the next day after Thanksgiving, people really want to get out of the house. <laughs> they want to get out and go shopping. Um, I think Black Friday originally started a little bit under the radar as a big shopping uh, sale day just because it's early in the season to buy for Christmas. But what Black Friday has grown into is a major event in itself. And it's a time where there are these incredible deals, or at least there's that there are going to be these incredible deals. And we now find ourselves in this almost treadmill of, of and a feeling of intense need, and uh, perhaps what the millennials will call FOMO, or the fear of missing out. And so, you know, where the mental health strain may come with Black Friday is this thing that I better get out. I feel obligated to get in uh, the best deal that I can. And, you know, we sort of feel this pressure the rest of the year, but on Black Friday, that, that now has this reputation as for the best deal. And if I dip then I've already started the season off on the wrong foot. So Black Friday, it, it's competitive. Uh, it can be incredibly stressful, uh, certainly for people who go out to the stores. Um, and it even can interfere with families because the, the advertisements for Black Friday actually start coming out early. And you'll even find people spending their Thanksgiving day looking at the ads for Black Friday. So in some families, that probably isn't going to go over too well, because now instead of communicating with the rest of the family, you're focused so much on what you're going to get the next day and strategizing where you're going to go that uh, it it, it can actually cause problems. Well, you know, the whole idea as well that, you know, we used to talk about Black Friday, but realistically, the shopping starts on Thanksgiving, if not before. because you've got these stores that, 
and seems to be an increasing number every year, that will open at 5, 6 o'clock on Thanksgiving Day. Um, and you, to some extent, have that same sort of fever to get out, get those deals. And you have to wonder, yeah, and this- I always wonder, first of all, who exactly is going to pursue those? And then secondly, what's really motivating people to... Yeah, what's motivating people, of course, is they, they think they want to save money, but I think it's also become much of a social competition mm. to be able to brag to your friends, oh, look at the deal I got. And and the one uh, item I often think is, is singled out as you know, probably one of the most outrageous sales that you're going to find on Black Friday, these big screen TVs. And once upon a time, it used to be enough that, okay, I got my 48-inch screen TV, and now I'm happy. But then the following year, it turns out you could get a uh, 69-inch TV uh, for even less a price than you got the previous year for your 48-inch TV. And and, uh, it's almost this competition against others, but it's also a competition with oneself. Like, let's see if I can push myself to get the best deal possible. And it's almost a game. Um, and it's very controversial, the idea of starting Black Friday on Thursday. It's certainly uh, an issue for the employees who are required to come in, spend their Thanksgiving back in the store. But it's also, I, I have no doubt, there are numerous stores that have been cursed by, by uh, some of the, the heads of some families where they say, you know, they're <laughs> destroying our family tradition because now no one's mind is really on hanging out after dinner and, you know, uh, enjoying every the warmth of everyone's company. Now all anyone can think about is let's finish dinner quickly so we can get the heck out of here and get on to the sales. Um, part of this is triggered by uh, there's this notion of, of a kind of called the scarcity principle that that one of the big things that happens on Black Friday is with some of these sales, people kind of find out in advance that there's a limited number of certain really good deals that are available and they want to absolutely be among the first people to get those deals. That's why you'll see people in line for hours in advance of a store opening, because they want to be among the first to get in. And uh, there have even been uh, instances around the country where there are stampedes when the doors open and people have gotten hurt. Um, uh, I think on Long Island some years ago, there was a major stampede at a Walmart uh, because so many people had had waited in line for hours that when the doors finally opened, they wanted to crowd in and make sure they got the limited number of items, you know, the, the particular things on their list. That in the moment, the heat of the moment, you don't, you kind of forget who else is around you and and how much you may potentially harm other people around you, because you have a single-minded focus. You want that one item. So. What really happened to the idea of the holidays being a joyous time, a spirit-filled time, as opposed to, I got to go and get X, Y, Z, and get there as fast as I can to beat that other person that's trying to get there and get it, again, as fast as they can and as cheap as they can? I think part of what happened is that uh, a lot of stores came to realize that the vast majority of their profits happened during a narrow part of the year between Thanksgiving and New Year's. 
Okay, buying Christmas gifts and simply buying something for others or oneself at the end of the year has become an extremely major boom to profitability and and the way companies make money. And um, as I said, Black Friday used to be somewhat under the radar, but now it's become a media event. And so much so that even the term Black Friday, yes, it doesn't even mean much anymore in the sense that it's the Friday after Thanksgiving that we place all the emphasis but it starts on Thanksgiving. And the reality is you'll find some stores even advertising quote unquote Black Friday sales weeks before Thanksgiving. So there are some places that already are having quote unquote Black Friday sales. Um, the other big thing, of course, that's changing is that Black Friday originally was uh, having to show up in person at these stores, which right. is why people would have to wait online for hours. But of course, much of it's moved online. Mm-hmm. And in the early years, uh, by that I simply mean maybe 10 or 15 years ago, with the internet starting to become increasingly popular as a venue to buy things, um, Black Friday was often followed by what was called Cyber Monday, which is the Monday after Black Friday, the Monday after Thanksgiving. And that was supposed to be the day that all the in, all of the online places, Amazon.com, but, but you know, countless other online sources of buying things, that's when they would have their sales. Well, I think they realize they're not going to be one-upped by any old, you know, in-person opportunity on Friday. So their, their sales begin on Friday in many cases as well. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talk about the holidays, one of the things that naturally comes up in discussion is this whole idea of people who say they want to be in the spirit of the holidays, but they get tired of hearing those same holiday songs over and over and over again. I mean, if, for example, for most of us, if we hear that chipmunk song one more time, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally, I mean, literally, you want to scream mm-hmm. because it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I think that there's part of the population that hears those and it immediately is almost like fingers on a blackboard. They, they don't want to hear it. And I'd suspect that a key part of that is the memories that it brings of seasons past that they would rather forget. And, and just the repetitive nature of it uh, is almost a weary feeling. But, of course, those songs are repeated. And let's be honest, the reason why most radio stations, most stores will play that music is because it is popular. If the vast majority of people really were turned off that music, I suspect that uh, various places would be forced to change their change their tune, literally. Uh, I think for a lot of people, they, they're good to nostalgia. And it's not to... Once again, bring it back to my book is that is that we we want to have a certain degree of sameness because it's comfortable. Familiarity is often very comfortable, and it is a chance to relive previous the feelings of previous years, um, at least in terms of the romanticized notion of what the holiday should be. Um, but by the flip side, there's some people who are so sick of the holidays, and this may also feed into why they get sick of these tunes. Holidays for some people are extremely stressful. 
they could be extremely lonely because, again, there's this expectation you're going to be getting together with family and friends, and some people simply don't have family they can or want to hang out with. Um, and so the whole premise that we're forced to confront all of these holiday songs and, and images and such, some people find very irritating. And, and beyond irritation, some of them may find it actually depressing uh, and sort of reinforcing certain negative feelings. Um, and so you know, as much as we, we want to believe it's the end of the year ending with good cheer, uh, for many folks, all they, they just can't wait until the New Year uh, holiday to pass by so that we Dr. Jason Young is talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in a discussion with Dr. Jason Young on our program. He is co-author of the new book, uh, Resistance to Belief Change. Uh, He is talking with us about this topic of social psychology. We've touched upon the holiday season, a little bit of uh, talk about Black Friday, too, and what this means for one's mental health. Let's talk a little bit more about the holidays, because uh, you mentioned something I alluded to something earlier that I want to expand on. And that's this situation where relatives and or friends get together for a holiday occasion, a party, etc. The key question here is a blunt one. How do you handle somebody who's truly annoying? Oh boy, uh, and and this of course is something we all we all have to deal with. And there's probably someone who pops up in our mind immediately when we think of that label. Um, the holidays are especially th- uh, stressful, and, and Thanksgiving Day in particular, because we are confronted sometimes by members of either our own family or friends who we find very bothersome, irritating, in large part because they often hold beliefs that are totally different from our own. And Thanksgiving, the last few years, have been highlighted as, as uh, uh, in many cases, very contentious times, because especially if people talk about politics or talk about other topics that they feel very strongly about, there's a temptation to want to use the occasion to try to explain to others, to teach others, to enlighten others what we think and why we are correct. And here's the big problem. Everyone else has the same perspective as well. <laughs> and so probably one of the, 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 the first rules of finding oneself in those situations is recognize the fact that as strongly as you feel about your opinion, as much as you're convinced that your evidence is better than all others, uh, other people feel exactly the same way. And that is a very humbling uh, and very difficult thing for us to acknowledge. And if there was a single recipe for trying to avoid conflict at the dinner table, for example, Thanksgiving, it's that recognize you're not going to change other people, plain and simply. We'd like to believe that we have the power to do so. But if you're confronting someone else who also has strong opinions, you're both not likely to change in the moment. 
Now, you may sway some people who are undecided or really are learning about something. And that really speaks to the times when we can change. And that's when people are open-minded. But in the heat of the moment, when especially when emotions run high, um, we tend to fortify our, our defenses. And we're far less likely to change. So part of dealing with the conflict uh, with friends and, and others in these situations is recognizing within ourselves that we're not going to produce change in that immediate situation. And the best thing we can do, find a third topic, find, find some other focus. I mean, sort of the obvious, but find a movie everyone wants to go to, or, you know, WFAN, Hey, how about the bears? How about, how about that team? Um, and, and, you know, just change the topic. Um, and, and, if there's going to be a genuine change, it's going to happen under uh, calmer circumstances. But probably around the holidays, that's not the time it's likely to happen, especially if alcohol is involved, especially if there's a big crowd around and everyone sort of watching everyone. You know, and, uh, It's not just that we don't want to listen to others. We also want to sort of preserve our self-esteem and the image we others have of us. We don't want to back down. And, and that often leads us to this. Uh, dig our feet even deeper into the ground and hold our place. I'm glad you mentioned alcohol because this, unfortunately, at some holiday functions gets to be a problem because you get people who consume way too much alcohol. What's the best way for handling somebody who falls in that category or some people who fall in that category? Well, the single best way would be to restrict alcohol availability, just plain and simple. And that's easier said than done in some cases, because for some people, what the holidays are about is lots of eggnog and, and, and hot toddies and, and lots of other types of holiday-related alcoholic drinks. Um, and some people don't want to be a buzzkill and, and, you know, say, all right, we're out. Uh, we're going to try drinking cranberry juice instead of, of any form of alcohol. Um, but simply restricting the availability of it would be the single most effective way of, of sort of cutting people off. Um, but, but there are also circumstances where, you know, uh, there's some people who, we might notice a lot more how much they're overindulging more so than the rest of the year in part because we're more likely to be at parties where we're seeing these folks drink or, or overconsume. Um, and I mean, there's a serious side of this. And again, the holidays, everyone's supposed to be of good cheer. But so for some people, that may be the moment where someone needs to talk to them and say, you, you need to, to slow down. You've got to get control um, and to the degree you can reason with someone, that's great. But sometimes it also calls for bringing in an intervention of some type. Uh, you know, a group of friends who try to uh, talk to a friend and uh, someone who they, they think may be in trouble and, and basically try to connect them up with a clinic or a doctor or someone who, who could speak to them. And then we get into the whole idea of the holiday office or company party, mm-hmm. which um, th- there's a lot potentially that could be on the line uh, there. What's the best advice you give somebody for surviving going to one of those parties? 
Uh, <laughs> well, it, again, it's, it's almost a counterintuitive recommendation, but it is to restrict drinking as much as possible. Um, number one, because lots of drinking <clears throat> often leads to the, the times when we say things we wouldn't otherwise uh, think was wise to say. Um, holiday parties, we often are unaware of the extent to which other people are watching our behavior. And we're watching everyone else as well. Um, there may be parties the rest of the year as well, but the holiday parties especially are the times when we, we notice, you know, everyone's supposed to be happy. Everyone's supposed to be, um, uh, I don't know, helping each other, but at least being generous to each other. And uh, these parties are kind of forced opportunities to get together. Uh, it's almost like Thanksgiving in the sense that if you don't go to the holiday party, your coworkers are going to ask, well, why weren't you there? And so uh, some people dread these types of things as much as they dread family reunions. And it's just, I don't want to hang out with my coworkers or I don't want to risk making a fool of myself. Uh, so, so the single best thing that someone can do with those parties uh, number one is uh, limit alcohol intake. Number two, pick one person to go with as a friend, as a social support, an emotional support, so that if things start getting a little too intense, you can draw that friend you know, aside and kind of do a quick reality check to, to make sure that, that you know, what you're worrying about that other people are saying about you or how things are going, you can sort of bounce ideas off of each other. All right, let's shift our focus from talking about the holidays to talking about some people who have um, what some folks might view as um, kind of an elitist attitude. And this uh, discussion stems from a study by the American Psychological Association of those in our society who have greater wealth than the rest of us. Uh, First of all, I'd like to get your reaction to that study and, you know, some of the reasons behind this, what some might view as an elitist attitude of wealthy individuals. Yeah, well, one of the things that wealth brings with it, uh, obviously, greater amounts of money, but really what money provides people is a degree of controllability and predictability. And one of the things that wealthy people can do a bit more than the rest of us they can perhaps better control the people who are around them, or at least the people who have an impact on how they feel about themselves. And one of the ways we can improve our self-esteem and the way we view ourselves is to surround ourselves with people who reinforce the view that we are better. Um, not even It may not even start with us being elitist, but at least that we're doing really well and that we are great people and that we are very successful. And it is out of those uh, sentiments that emerges the sense that, oh, I am better than everyone else, the elitism. But it's really because we can control, you know, uh, the yes people that we hire to be around us. And uh, when you're wealthier, you can better control who you hire, um, who works for you, uh, where you can choose to be. Um, and that's number one. So it's partly we can better, uh, wealthy people can better construct the social environments that they find themselves in. But then there's the other side as well, is that some of the folks who are wealthy started out by thinking very positively about themselves, and they just continue to sort of psych themselves into thinking that way. 
And that's some, certainly not something that only wealthy people can do. But we, they, we may notice them a lot more when they're wealthy, in part because we tend to pay more attention to wealthy people. And so we see, oh, this person really thinks a lot about themselves. Um, you know, are they being arrogant? Are they being stuck up? Or is this simply a way of psyching themselves into further success? Mm. Interesting discussion with Dr. Jason Young on our program today. Dr. Young is the co-author of the new book, Resistance to Belief Change. He's been talking with us about um, this topic of social psychology. We've covered a number of interesting areas in uh, this discussion. And it seems like you have a lot of fun, too, with um, the work that you're doing. I think it is the greatest field of study, but I better feel that way. I've been doing it for more than 30 <laughs> years. But, but I, I think it has a lot to say about just a lot of the social trends and, and, and uh, general everyday behaviors that people have. Um, it, it, it's great. And New York City, again, I will say, is an astoundingly wonderful place to be to, to get to be a social psychologist. It's like having a lab literally everywhere you look when it's New York it, City. It is, and I do not mean that in a condescending way, like everyone around I just see as a subject. It's not that at all, because I'm as much of a part of this process as anyone else. It, but it's simply the, the immediacy and the importance of what we study. You can see why it matters, and, and that, that's what makes it so, uh, such a great fit with New York. Dr. Young, thank you very much for joining us on our program. Certainly good luck continued with your book, too. Thank you very much, Mark, or Bob. I've much enjoyed it. So have a great morning. You too now. Coming up at uh, 7 o'clock this morning, it is the NFL preview program here on The Fan at 7.30. Rick Wolf's Sports Edge is long. At 8.30, it's JJ and the morning line. At 9 o'clock, football Sunday with Melusis and Deal. Just a reminder about Radio.com Rewind. You can check out, listen to any WFAN program you may have missed over the past 24 hours. The key thing, and listen, if you haven't done this yet, what on earth are you waiting for? Simply download the Radio.com app. You select WFAN. Maybe you missed a big interview. Something funny. You just want to hear an entire show. Easy to navigate. You can pause, rewind, any length of a segment you choose. Take a listen to an entire show. It's the all-new Radio.com Rewind. I would say it's a way you can listen the way that you want, when you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.